Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. The first thing that you notice about John Fetterman is how he looks. He's about as tall as Lurch Adams. He has tattoos running down his arm that mark the date of every murder that happened in his town when he was mayor of Braddock. Um, He's got a goatee, he's got a bald head. People have said that he looks like a convict. not like Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor, which he is now. Is there a concern among those advising you, or do you have the concern that perhaps you are too progressive for where Pennsylvania voters are right now? I mean, I, I'm a lieutenant governor, uh, the second highest office holder, so, you know, Pennsylvania must like something of what I stand for. And now he is running for the Democratic nomination for Senate. And again, the way that he looks, his style, his just kind of unusual Uh, nature for a politician are all things that are helping contribute to the fact that he is right now considered to be the person to beat in the race. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Holly Otterbein on John Fetterman, the Pennsylvania Senate race, and the big question Democrats are facing as they consider the future of their party. So Fetterman grew up in York County, Pennsylvania. He had, you know, what he describes as basically a pretty normal middle-class life. He was going to follow in his father's footsteps um, and work in the very lucrative insurance industry. Uh But then all that changed when his best friend died in his 20s in a car accident. And kind of as he was searching for meaning in his life... Afterward, he volunteered at Big Brothers Big Sisters, Mm -hmm. and he was paired with a little boy who had lost his dad to AIDS, and shortly thereafter lost his mom as well to AIDS. And that kind of got Fetterman thinking about the, you know, what he calls the random lottery of birth and the cruelty of that. And he totally switched careers. He became a social worker and then eventually found himself in Braddock um, working with young people. Truth be told, you'd be hard-pressed to find a town more in need of economic stimulus than Braddock, Pennsylvania. It was the site of Andrew Carnegie's very first steel mill, a thriving industry town of about 20,000 people. Now, just 3,000 remain. Unemployment is sky high, and on Sunday, the town's biggest employer will close. And a few years after moving to Braddock, he actually decided to run for mayor. Mm -hmm. He says that he ran to draw attention to the violence that was affecting the young people that he was working with. Didn't seem like he really anticipated winning, but he ended up winning in a three-way Democratic primary by one single vote. And in Braddock, which is an overwhelmingly Democratic town, um, that means that you've essentially won the election. Uh Uh-huh. So then the town starts getting attention, like shortly after he becomes mayor, you know, the New York Times does a story, Rolling Stone does a story. Today, 90% of the population of Braddock has left. Less than 3,000 people remain. The poverty rate here is three times the national average. There is no restaurant or ATM, no gas station or supermarket. But for those people who do remain in this small town, there is hope, and it comes in the form of a very large man. And the reason that he's getting all of this attention is because he's got a story. You know, this guy who looks like he could be a hell's angel 
is working on revitalizing this place that um, is a struggling steel town and kind of represents like the rise and fall of the steel industry in America. Everywhere you see something growing, there were homes here. Come on in and, and see, you know, why we are trying so hard to save as many of these structures as we can. You know, back when it was booming, Braddock was this very lively town and he's trying to renovate it. Mm -hmm. He's trying to revitalize it. You know, he's talking about doing things like building community senators and, you know, using art to what he says is combat the dark side of capitalism. And that's that gets him a, just a ton of attention. When he took over, the town's streets were a mix of abandoned buildings, empty lots and closed shops. As mayor, he set out to bring change, turning the vacant lots into gardens and basketball courts, and promoting public safety and housing for seniors. He says it's been a challenge. So with all of this coverage, this national spotlight shining on this small town, which has a majority black population, Fetterman's profile rises. And in 2018, so not too long ago, he announces a bid for lieutenant governor. Everyone's here for a major announcement. And uh, I decided to wear long pants today. Oh, and I'm also running for lieutenant governor. Um, he ends up winning, beating out an incumbent. Lieutenant governor is usually a pretty low-profile gig, in a way. Like, I don't think I could really name many for other states, but... For Fetterman, this past year hasn't exactly fit that mold, has it? No, it hasn't. Um, you're right. Usually the lieutenant governor's job is seen as largely ceremonial, but he has taken it and done some different things with it. First, he he grew his profile more um, since he became lieutenant governor, partly because he basically became the face of the Pennsylvania Democrats on cable TV when Trump was crying fraud and challenging the state's election results. When you have the president arguing that there was mass voter fraud in the absence of any evidence whatsoever, I mean, literally zero. I mean, I could be sitting here with my wife saying, you know, let's all celebrate my lush full head of hair this morning, okay? And if I had a party apparatus and whatever, tens of millions of voters, you know, I could keep making that argument, even though it's obviously not true. He was just all over the news on MSNBC, on CNN, constantly refuting Trump and sort of giving that red meat to the Democratic base of, you know, criticizing Trump and criticizing what he was doing in, in terms of challenging the election. So I want to get into Fetterman's current Senate bid, the reason we're sitting here talking about him. But first, in working on this story, You've had the chance to really spend some time with him, talk with him, talk with his family. Cable news aside, what is John Fetterman actually like? Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. I interviewed him both in Braddock, where he still lives today, and in Harrisburg, where the lieutenant governor's office is. And, you know, I was the Politico Bernie Sanders reporter in the 2020 primary, and Fetterman kind of reminds me of Bernie huh. on a personal level, not not so much on a political level, but on a personal level. They're both a little bit grumpy, <laughs> a little bit antisocial, mm -hmm. but voters like them because they feel like they're authentic. 
And those two things are intertwined. Like the person who's not afraid to be grumpy in front of a reporter yeah. is also not going to be afraid to just speak their mind to voters and voters, I think, can pick up on that. Hmm. But this kind of introspective side of Fetterman, just as it caused problems for Bernie, is causing problems for him um, in the primary. So even though he is seen as the front runner, he's raised all this money. Um, he has, you know, more name ID than any other Democratic candidate in the race right now. A lot of Democratic elected officials that I talked to about him said he hasn't done enough to build relationships with them. Hmm. And there's a debate over whether or not that matters in the statewide race. You know, I talked to former Governor Ed Rendell. He said it doesn't, you know, in a big race like this where there's going to be tons of money poured into advertising, people make up their own minds. But on the other hand, some elected officials argue, you know, this is a matter that affects governing. If you don't have allies and friends, you usually aren't able to govern as well. And he's attracting all these opponents. Like people aren't afraid to run against him. And they also, you know, they don't have loyalties that are like stopping them from running against him. Mm -hmm. Another um, thing to point out is a Democratic consultant I talked to said when a recent controversy resurfaced of Fetterman's in which he pulled a gun on a black jogger who he thought was involved potentially in a shooting, but he wasn't. He says Fetterman followed me into North Braddock and pulled a shotgun and aimed it at my chest. Did you point the shotgun at him? No, I did not. I pointed it, you know, a way so uh, that he would see that I was armed, but I did not point it at him. In fact, I didn't even have a round chambered or the uh, remove the safety at that point. Fetterman says that he did nothing wrong and he didn't know that the jogger was black. Um, but nonetheless, when this happened, you know, this consultant pointed out there weren't a ton of Democratic elected officials like circling the wagons for him and defending him. And so that's another kind of example of how you see this um, trait of his potentially hurting him in the primary. Mm. It's interesting, too, with this race, which we should mention is hugely important for both parties. It's in 2022. Republican Senator Pat Toomey is retiring. So whoever is the Democratic nominee would be trying to flip the seat. But reading your reporting on this race, it's not just in Pennsylvania where Fetterman's been kind of controversial. He's kind of sparked this big polarized response that involves the future of the Democratic Party and this big question of who they represent. He's this guy who says he can win over working class voters, but he's also gotten resistance over his position on a fracking ban on some other stuff. And there's a question of whether Democrats should go more toward the progressive base. And then there's also the fact that there's resistance from black leaders, from other Democrats who say, why should we be pushing for another white guy for national office? Why not push for someone like State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, who is black and is also running? What do you make of all this and what it tells us about the state of the party right now? Yeah, another factor behind the sort of strange relationships that he has with some Democratic officials is this debate that you're talking about. It's been going on for years within the party um, over whether it should try to win back those working-class white voters that it lost for years and then really lost under Trump, um, or if it should really double down on increasing turnout and excitement among the suburban voters and voters of color 
who have really helped Democrats win in recent years. And Fetterman, to be clear, he says you should try to win them all. Um, and, and he has tried to project an inclusive campaign. You know, his motto is every county, every vote. But at the same time, he's also made the case that he's the guy to win over Trump voters in a general election. You know, in his launch video, there's a man who's quoted as saying, essentially, you know, Fetterman can get a lot of those Trump voters. That turns off many, you know, Democratic elites who think that trying to woo Trump voters is a fool's errand for one thing, and then maybe even potentially kind of dangerous that it could lead to bad politics. Hmm. And many also think that, you know, now is not the time to nominate uh, another white guy, um, that either a woman or a person of color or a female person of color should win the nomination. Holly Otterbein, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Also today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is rejecting a push from the left wing of her party to swiftly vote on legislation to expand the Supreme Court with Democrats in full control of Washington. On Thursday, Pelosi said she has, quote, no intention to bring legislation that would bump the number of justices to 13 from 9 to the House floor. Instead, Pelosi says she supports President Biden's recent move to create a commission to study possible expansion of the high court. And House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says he has met privately with Congressman Matt Gates and that the Florida Republican denied any misconduct stemming from a federal sex trafficking investigation. McCarthy has previously committed to removing Gates from his committee assignments if the allegations against the scandal-plagued congressman centrally that he had sex with a 17-year-old girl and paid for sex proved to be true. Asked again on Thursday whether Gates would maintain his seat on the House Judiciary Committee given its oversight of the Justice Department, McCarthy said Gates is, quote, innocent until proven guilty. There's no charges against him yet, and if a charge comes forward, that will be dealt with at that time. The Politico Dispatch production team includes senior producer Jenny Ament and executive producer Irene Noguchi. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.